0: What do Queen Latifah, Jack Nicholson, Morgan Freeman, and Tim McGraw all have in common? They've all done work relating to what's known as a bucket list. Gaining a new perspective and doing new things before you kick the bucket. Here's the synopsis of Queen Latifah's movie, The Last Holiday. Uh, Synopsis I just found on the internet. You Google, this comes up. Says this, the discovery that she has a terminal illness prompts the introverted saleswoman, Georgia Bird, Queen Latifah, to reflect on what she realizes has been an overly cautious life. So Georgia withdraws her life savings and jets off to Europe, where she lives like a millionaire. Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman starred in the movie it's called The Bucket List, aptly named. It came out a year after the last holiday. Here's the synopsis. You Google The Bucket List, and this is what comes up. The billionaire Edward Cole, played by Jack Nicholson, and car mechanic Carter Chambers, Morgan Freeman, are complete strangers until fate lands them in the same hospital room. The men find that they have two things in common, a need to come come to terms with who they are and what they have done with their lives, and a desire to complete a list of things they want to see and do before they die. Against the doctor's advice, the men leave the hospital and set out on the adventure of a lifetime. The movie The Bucket List also features the really, really catchy country song Live Like You Are Dying by Tim McGraw. And Tim McGraw sings about skydiving, route- rocky mountain climbing, and going 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu-, Fu Manchu. Well, these movies and that song are good in the sense that they remind us of the brevity of life. And they force us to think about what we do with the time that we've been given. But as sentimental and uplifting as those movies and that song are, uh, they have a mindset behind them that's flawed. A mindset behind them that's flawed. The mindset is that this life is it, and it's coming to an end rapidly. Now compare this mindset with how Christians throughout history have faced the harsh realities of life, the harshest being the reality of death. Polycarp, 2nd century Christian. He was a student of the Apostle John. Polycarp was told to deny Christ and he'd be set free. To that, Polycarp, Polycarp famously responded. He said this, 86 years I have served him. And he has done me no harm. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Take another example from church history. Christians facing death. As Scottish officials were set to hang Donald Cargill in Edinburgh for his devotion to Christ in 1685, Cargill said this. This is the most joyful day that I ever saw on earth. My joy is now begun, which shall never be interrupted. I am no more terrified at death because of sin than if I had never sinned, for all my sins are freely pardoned and washed thoroughly away through the priceless blood of Jesus Christ. Christian mindset facing death. about D.L. Moody, the famous American evangelist? He wrote this famously about his death He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am right now. Writing to the Philippians from prison, the Apostle Paul said simply, to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's a difference there, isn't there? Between the bucket list mentality And the Christian mindset. What is that difference? It's the freedom won by Christ. Well, friends, if there's any place that explains that well, Christ winning that, it's Hebrews chapter two, verses fourteen to eighteen. So turn there with me. If you're looking at a red uh, Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page one thousand and two. If you're looking at your own Bible, it's toward the back of the Bible, after Titus and Philemon. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to To lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Why did the author of Hebrews write this passage? It's a good question to ask when approaching any portion of Scripture. Well, the book of the whole, as a whole, Hebrews, is a letter that's basically a long sermon. It's written predominantly to Jewish Christians, and we can get a hint of their situation even from this passage. You look at verse 18. The author says that Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. This is something that these Hebrew Christians were going through. Amidst persecution and suffering for their Christian faith, these believers were tempted to retreat to their old covenant religion. So when calling them to remain faithful, the author of Hebrews simply puts Christ before them. And throughout the book, he puts the one before them who is superior to what they left behind the one who is superior to angels, the one who is superior to Moses, to the tabernacle, to the priesthood, to the sacrificial system. In this passage, Hebrews 2 is no different. The author puts Christ before them. If we could summarize this passage, summarize this sermon in in a single sentence or a main takeaway, it would be this. That against the harsh realities of the world, the most practical and uplifting thing to do is to focus on Jesus. The most practical and uplifting thing to do is focus on Jesus. It's very simple. And that's what the author of Hebrews keeps telling these Christians to do. You can find chapter 2, verse 1. He says, pay attention to what you have heard. Soon after, chapter 3, verse 1, he says simply, consider Jesus. Probably most strongly, chapter 12, verse 2. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, putting Christ before them. Now, today is Palm Sunday. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that day, all eyes were on him. And we want to do that today. We want to do that every day. Focus on Christ. And from this passage, I think there are three different things about him which we can focus on. We focus on his sacrifice. We focus on what he's accomplished. We focus on his abiding presence. I'll repeat those throughout in case you're writing them down. Sacrifice, what he accomplished, his abiding presence. So we get our first matter, focus on his sacrifice, and two words from verse 14. Two words, verse 14. Those two words are through death. Through death. Now before we get into that, what that means to focus on a sacrifice, focus on his death, we have to say at this point, just from the outset, that this is a strange thing to do. Focus on someone's death. Because no other religion is like this. No other religion focuses on the death of its founder. Instead, other religions talk first and pretty much only about the way of life prescribed by their founders, whether it be the uh, five pillars or the eightfold path. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't teach us the way to live, but when early Christians spoke about preaching Christ, they spoke first of preaching Christ crucified. They focused on his death. But before we get into what Jesus' death means, we have to notice something that comes before it. So in order for Jesus to die, something else had to happen. He had to become a man. So the beginning of verse 14, what it says there, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Well, it seems like a simple concept, right? It's, the example I thought of is like being fired from a job. I hope that doesn't happen to anyone here. But to be, in order to be fired from a job, what has had to happen before that happens? You had to be hired. You have to be hired in order to be fired. What a simple concept. In order to die, Jesus had to become a man. And that concept's known as the incarnation. It's a simple one, but such a profound one at that. Now, what is it? What is the incarnation? We could just say what an incarnation is in general. an uh, An incarnation of something is the embodiment of what is abstract or unseen. The embodiment of what is abstract or unseen. So You can come up with a lot of examples. You could say that vanilla custard from East Coast Custard is the incarnation of dessert masterpiece. Right there, embodiment. By taking on flesh, Jesus allows us to see, hear, and approach God because he also is God in himself. Not another God, but of the same nature as the triune God. This is the point of how the book of Hebrews begins, actually, Chapter 1, verse 1, it, it says, Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. It goes on, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. So Jesus had to become a man. And that happened not just so that we can know God as if we've never known Him before. But He had to become a man also because... We need a representative. We need a representative. So Jesus, God the Son, could not stand in our place unless he truly became human. Since we have flesh and blood, he took on flesh and blood. You look at verse 14, you might notice there's a difference in verbs there. Used for us and used for Christ. The verb share versus partook. Now, uh, they're different, but they really mean the same thing. The the key difference between these two is not in the words themselves. It's in the tense of the verbs. Uh, So you see, we've always shared in flesh and blood. It's just who we are. It's a part of our nature. But Christ, who's existed always alongside the Father, began to partake in flesh and blood. He took on flesh and blood. As verse 17 puts it, he was made like us in every way. So that we read, when we read of Christ in the Gospels, we read of him being hungry. We read of him being tired. We read of him feeling pain. So God the Son took on human nature so that we would know God so that we would have a representative. But there's one more reason. And if we just left it here, Jesus would just be able to empathize with us. But there's one more important reason, probably the most important reason. Jesus didn't come to be our representative in order to be our example. Jesus came to be our representative in order to be our substitute. God the Son became man so that he would be able to die. He became killable. This was his mission, to give his life as a ransom for many. So when entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, this is what Jesus had in mind that he was going to do. So here is infinite love toward us, as John Calvin says, but its overflowing appears in this, that Jesus... Put on our nature so that he might thus himself be capable of dying. For as God, he could not undergo death. So, friends, think about the Hebrew Christians for a moment those under trial for their faith and those suffering for it. What they and us would not choose for ourselves, Jesus voluntarily chose for himself. And he did it for us. God loves us in this way. That his son would step off his throne, become killable, and be killed. To think of setting aside infinite glory and going through all of that is a thought already too high for us. But to think that Jesus did that for people who hate him. That's a love that eternity itself can't exhaust. And so Jesus' sacrifice, as loving as it is, and that's what we focus on. Jesus' sacrifice, as loving as it is, it also appears foolish to some degree. If there was ever a time when the chorus of hell could rejoice It was when God the Son became killable and was actually killed. But there's a hint in the words here that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. What does it say in verse 14? It says, through death. This is not an end in itself, it's the means by which he accomplished great things through death. As I've heard it said, Jesus did not say on the cross, I am finished. He said on the cross, "It is finished." And what is it? What did Jesus accomplish? Well, that's our next point. That's the next thing we focus on. Focus on what He accomplished. How does a mouse trap work? I'm not talking about one of those uh, new kinds of mouse traps, like a little black box that lures the mice in and you don't know what happens. Those are no fun. <laughs> some of the old school mouse traps, like uh, Tom and Jerry, right? Old wooden ones. Uh, you're supposed to put cheese on one end to lure the mouse in. And if I were a mouse, Colby Jack cheese would get me every time. <laughs> and you're supposed to lure the mouse in and, and, and the mouse probably thinks to himself, ha, free cheese. <laughs> and I don't even have to work for it. <laughs> Who's the fool who left this out for me? And just as the mouse thinks he's won, snap, he loses. Just as the devil thought he won, Christ is dead. Snap. He lost. Augustine called Christ's death a mousetrap for the devil. He said this, The devil exalted when Christ died, And by this same death of Christ, the devil was conquered, as if he took the bait in a trap. He was rejoicing at the death, as if he were the commander of death. That at which he rejoiced was there stretched for him, a trap for the devil, the cross of the Lord, the bait with which he was to be caught, the death of the Lord. And behold, our Lord Jesus rose again. Where is the death that hung on the cross? So the very thing at which the devil rejoiced is what brought about his destruction. Christ's death isn't foolish, it's genius. And what did he accomplish through it? What did Jesus accomplish through his death? We see two things right away in verses 14 and 15, and then we see one more in verse 17. So to give you a heads up, this is the longest point of the sermon, so just bear with me, buckle up. So through death, Jesus accomplished at least three different things that's described here. Through death first, Jesus says destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. I just want to break down what this means. So first, what does it mean for the devil to have the power of death? Sometimes when when answering what it does it mean, you first answer what does it not mean? So this does not mean that this power is inherent to the devil that he's somehow God's equal and opposite over a a dualistic worldview. That is not the case. No. The Bible says that death entered with Adam's sin against God, and that sin was brought about through the temptation of the devil. And this is what the devil wants for people, to coax them into sin and thus into death and thus away from God. We've reflected last week some on how the devil normally does this and how he normally seeks to operate. Normally, the devil seeks to operate without anyone detecting him. That's his normal pattern. He would keep us away from God and plunging into death without knowing it. Kind of like carbon monoxide. Can't see it, can't smell it, can't taste it. It's deadly. That's what makes it all the more deadly. So you may have heard of the devil's ideal city. Famously described by Donald Barnhouse. We may think that the devil's ideal city something like Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know about that. Barnhouse argues that the devil's ideal city would be something of the embodiment of what everyone says are the good old days. The devil's ideal city. In the devil's city, Every lawn's mowed. The devil's city, every bridge is free of graffiti. In the devil's city, no one drives over the speed limit. In the devil's city, children, all of them are obedient to their parents. In the devil's city, there's no divorce, all marriages remain intact. In the devil's ideal city, church buildings are beautiful and full. Boy, the devil's ideal city sounds pretty great, doesn't it? But you know what else is in the devil's city? The absence of the gospel. It's nowhere to be found. It's not preached anywhere. In the devil's ideal city, he uses moralism and the appearance of good and perfection to keep people from believing the gospel so that people, without even knowing it, slide into death and away from God. That's how the devil uses the power of death. So we're talking about what Christ has accomplished through his death. It says that through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. We talked about what it means for the devil to exercise that power. Now, what does it mean that Christ destroyed him? Again, what it doesn't mean. This does not refer to Satan's final destruction that comes at Christ's return. The New Testament describes Satan as an active enemy against God and against God's people. So what does it mean that Christ destroyed the devil through his death? Well, it's helpful to know what that word destroy means. That word means to deprive something of its power. So if the devil is like a snake, he might still be slithering but he is toothless. His venom cannot penetrate into our bloodstream. The one in us is greater than him. So think about focusing on this accomplishment. What difference would that make for us? What difference would it make for our lives that Jesus has vanquished the devil? Well, friend, if you're here, if, if you have not believed the gospel that Jesus is the Lord of your life and the Savior from your sin. If that is you, then Satan, the devil himself, takes an active role in blinding you. That's what God says. But since Christ defeated him, that means there is hope that you can see. So leave behind your sin today and come to Christ in faith. So what difference does it make? For those of us who have believed the gospel, what difference does Christ's accomplished victory over Satan make? Well, it means that Satan's accusations against us no longer hold any weight. Satan will remind us of our sinful past. He'll tell us of our unworthiness. He'll plant doubts in our mind. He'll say, there is no way that God has forgiven you of what you have done. There's no way. Christ's victory hushes Satan's accusations. As we sang earlier, the vile accuser roars of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knows none. It's been said that Satan knows our name and calls us by our sin. But when we are in Christ, God knows our sin and calls us by our name. Perhaps no one has more wisdom on dealing with Satan's accusations than Martin Luther. He wrote this. I I love this. He says, When the devil tells us we are sinners and therefore damned, we may answer, Because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. Then the devil will say, No, no, you will be damned. And I will reply, No, for I fly to Christ who has given himself for my sin, Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by telling me how great my sins are and try to reduce me to heaviness and despair. On the contrary, when you say I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that I can cut your throat with your own sword and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. My sin is on his shoulders, not mine. So when you say, I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. Through death, Jesus also accomplished not just victory over the devil. The second accomplishment says he delivers all those who through the fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. So another way that the devil uses the power of death is to paralyze us, enslave us to the fear of death. Now for some of us, we might not have to be convinced that we fear this. We've seen death. We have felt it gaining on us. It's crept over our shoulders. It's touched ones that we love. And for others, probably most people, we will deny that we fear this. We'll do anything not to think about death. We'll do anything to delay it, even eating something as grotesque as kale. (laughs) But even for people who avoid or delay death, hence they are still enslaved to the fear of it. Let me show you how this works. I want you to take three deep breaths. You might think I told you that to make you relax, which is okay if that's what happened. But in fact, I told you to do that so that you would actually do the exact opposite. You, now each one of us, now has three less breaths to our life. The pressure we feel to get things done, not to miss out, is because we know subtly in the back of our minds that the clock is running out and we will soon miss our chance. Why are we so frantic to run from one thing to the next, from one experience to the next, from one stage to the next? Why do those in their 20s feel like they have to take advantage of their freedom? Why do those in their 30s feel like they have to establish their career? Why do those in their 40s have a midlife crisis? It's because time is running out, and we're running out of the next things to come. Death is coming, and we fear we might miss our chances on life. Do you still believe that people don't fear death? The good news, friends, this says Jesus delivers us from the bondage of this, delivers us from the fear of death. We don't live like death is the end. We live as if it's the beginning of something amazing. And that frees us for how we live right now. So you may say, Steve, you know, I hear you on this. But, you know, I I think I'm all right. I think I can just take my chances on my own. Well, friend, if if any part of that is in you, you're going to have to work really, really hard not to think too hard about this. You know, listen to the realization that novelist Leo Tolstoy came to. He was around 50 years old. Tolstoy began to realize that every loved one would be taken away from him. And all that he had written, as great as it is, would one day be forgotten. In light of that, Tolstoy said this, the question was, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Everything here will go away. Now, if you're going to chance it on your own, don't think about that too much. You should probably go watch Netflix or check your newsfeed when those questions start to come up. Friends, the good news is that we don't have to be enslaved by such a fear as that. When we focus on the accomplishment of Christ's victory over death, we live in freedom. We don't have to make efforts not to think about what's to come. We should make efforts to think about what's to come. We don't get peace and meaning from avoiding what's to come. We get peace from thinking about what's to come because Christ died and rose in our place. Because Jesus delivers us from the fear of death. We don't have to fear that this life won't give us all that we want. Friends, it's not meant to. We won't have to fear that the end is coming and this is it. Christ's victory over death gives us a freedom now that nothing else can afford to us. Well, there is just one more thing, as the detective Columbo would say. <laughs> through Christ, he, through death, Christ defeated Satan and death, but there's also something else. It comes in verse 17. Christ also made propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, again, I'm just going to break down what this means, a little bit, what's going on around it. According to this verse, this making propitiation is Jesus' work as a priest. Now, a priest in Old Testament terms, is a go-between or mediator between God and people. A good definition even later in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5 verse 1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Good definition. Act on behalf of men in relation to God. So Jesus' accomplishment of making propitiation is not just done as a priest. It says here it's done as a high priest. Now, this doesn't mean a a tall priest, no. The readers of this book had a Jewish background. It would recognize that the high priest was different from a regular priest and that it was only the high priest who was permitted into the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement. On that day, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest represented all the people of God and offered a substitutionary sacrifice on their behalf so that a holy God could be at peace with a sinful people. That's how the author of Hebrews describes Jesus' work in his death. The work of a high priest. If you want to read more about that? The author of Hebrews talks more about that later in the book. But as a high priest, it says, Jesus made propitiation. Now That's a big word. What is it? Propitiation. At its core, propitiation is an atoning sacrifice. But you can say even more than that. By dying, Jesus not only washed away our sins, but he also satisfied God's holy justice and wrath for our sin. So Romans 1.18 speaks of how our ungodliness and our unrighteousness, basically that is our sin, places us under the wrath of God. But the Apostle Paul goes on in the book of Romans to explain in chapter 5 that while we were under God's wrath, while we were enemies with God, God reconciled us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. So then making propitiation for sin means that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God that he had for our sin. And Jesus did this not by sacrificing something else. Jesus did this by sacrificing himself. So that not only is Jesus the perfect priest, but Jesus is also the perfect sacrifice. So the overall point for these Hebrew Christians, the overall point for us, has been a focus on Christ's accomplishments. Now we ask the same question as we've been asking before, what difference does this make? What difference does focusing on Jesus making propitiation for our sins make? Now, friends, we need to be able to answer this. The difference, again, is largely related to transforming how we view our death. You see, death is not only not the end, but death is also a reckoning. Later in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9, uh, 927 The author will say how it's appointed uh, for each of us to die once and then face judgment. So each of us has a birthday, each of us has a death day, and that's a judgment day. Each of us will stand before God. And whether or not you have propitiation for your sins will make that occasion of standing before God either a joyous one or an absolutely terrifying one. And the only way you will have joy when you stand before God is if someone stands in your place. That is the only way. And, friends, there is no other substitute. There is no other mediator between God and man besides Jesus Christ the righteous. You need God the Father to look at the perfect record of God the Son and not your own record. You need God. And you need to trust in Christ and what he has accomplished through his death and resurrection right now. And that will make that day unspeakably joyous. One author puts Jesus' accomplishment through his death like this. He says, on the cross, Jesus got life without God so that we can have life with God. What bigger difference could that make, thinking about that right now? So my Christian brothers and sisters, would you focus on Christ's making propitiation for your sin? Christ's finished work means that he has absorbed all the anger of God for your sin. Our Father will never have anger or wrath for us again. Now, he disciplines those he loves. He doesn't want to see us hurt ourselves by sinning. But the promise is he will never cast us out. So brothers, sisters, stamp this on your heart. Remind yourself of it, especially in the midst of pain. What Paul says in Romans 8 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can be convinced that you are at peace with God and that he loves you. You can be convinced of that. And, friends, if we are convinced of that, then we could face anything. Bring it on. Okay, let's think of the Hebrew Christians reading this letter. Those who were enduring per- persecution for their devotion to Christ and were tempted to hang it up because of that persecution. The author of Hebrews basically is telling them I know you are going through all this, but look at what Christ accomplished through weakness through being persecuted, through dying. He accomplished things through that. He wasn't defeated by it. He was victorious through it. And he adds something else. Not only did Christ accomplish all this through weakness, but he's also with you right now. That's the last thing we focus on. Focus on Christ's abiding presence. And the author tells these, these Christians, that they are not alone in what they're going through. So just hone in real quick, two different verses, verse 16, verse 18. Verse 16 says that Christ helps us. It's such a simple concept. but it's Such a sweet one. And it even gets sweeter when we discover what that word help means. That word help here means to take hold of, to take by the hand, So in Jesus' rescue mission for us, he has taken hold of us by the hand and he is bringing us home. Echoes God's promise that he made to his people back in Isaiah 41. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So that's verse 16, Christ helps us. We see another light shed on the same concept in verse 18. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's not just that Christ was victorious, it's how he was victorious. You know, Jesus was not like Thanos from Avengers, Infinity War, and just snapped his fingers and poof, everything happened. That's how creation worked. That's not how redemption worked. Jesus went through death. And how many others tempted Jesus, tried to convince him not to go through death, to be disloyal to the will of God, to leave it behind. And so these Hebrew Christians, the same temptation, give up, retreat, let go. So for these Hebrew Christians and for us who are pilgrims in the world on our way home, we have one in Jesus who has went through the same thing as us and even more. We have one in Jesus who remained faithful to the end. What's more, the one who remained faithful is the one who stands as conqueror of sin and death. The one who remained faithful and who stands as conqueror is the one who is with us. That is he. That's the one who holds our hand and is not letting us go. So Christian brothers and sisters, look backwards. See what Christ has done. Look forward See what he has secured for us. And look right now and go forward and see the one who is with you. Let's pray. God, amidst all that we face, we simply put Christ before us. And we want to behold him, who he is, and what he has done. We see his love We see his power. We see his faithfulness. And we see his promises. And Lord, we are grateful. Focusing on those things, what can stand against us? You hold us in the palm of your hand. Death will not conquer us. Sin will not have the last word. Satan will not have the last word. Christ vanquished these foes. And we stand firmly in his victory. Lord, thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.